The following is a presentation of Hawkeye's Mike LLC. He throws his 18th pass on a pump fake, and the route was jumped, but Noah Fant caught it, and Noah Fant is streaking down the sideline and dives in for the touchdown for Iowa. 68 yards for Noah Fant, second TD of the day. This is now a 28-point third quarter for Iowa. 28 catches, 10 touchdowns. That is making the most of the times that you're targeted. <laughs> yes, it is. That's efficiency at its best. Wadley with a hole and a cutback and a bigger hole and an easy touchdown scored. Akron Wadley. For the second straight year, Akron Wadley now is a 1,000-yard rusher. That puts him over that milestone for this season. And this is a 21-point onslaught in less than six and a half minutes for Iowa. Man, it's been uh, it's credit to Iowa for coming out and pouncing, coming out in the second half, ready to go. And, man, they've laid the hammer down. And bringing the hammer was Wadley with that long touchdown run. Hello, everyone. This is John Patchett, and welcome to the football show from Hawkeye's Mike. This is our special 2017 Pinstripe Bowl Reporter's Notebook podcast. It features both of our regular sports writers, Steve Batterson and Scott Docterman, who break down the Iowa-Boston College Bowl game in depth and make their predictions. We also have a hang time feature this week with former Hawkeye's punter and place kicker Ron Caluzzi. This Hawkeye's Mike podcast is one in a series of our weekly programs which include sports reporter Scott Docterman of LandOf10.com and Steve Batterson from the Quad City Times, plus our own Tyler Chemeland and Jack Bransgard, as well as former Hawkeye Ron Caluzzi. Iowa-Nebraska regular season finale game highlights are courtesy of FS1. With announcers Mark Fallowell and Danny Cannell, we very much appreciate it and thank them. It is a jumbo package for the Hawkeyes on first and goal. Wadley hit at the goal line, spins in. Hawkeyes take the lead early in the third quarter. 33 career touchdowns for Akram Wadley, 26 of those rushing. The drive started after Amir Smith-Marset ran the kickoff back for a touchdown. There was a penalty that put them at the 22, and some tough running at the end, first by Drake Kulik, then by Wadley. Iowa has the lead on the road. Hawkeye's mic programs are brought to you in part by Prefence Hand Sanitizer. One application lasts all day. Try the hand sanitizer used by the Iowa Hawkeyes. And remember, the best defense is Prefence. And by TNK Roofing and Sheet Metal, building strong and safe in the Midwest for over 50 years. just going for the jugular right now. You see James Butler reaping the benefits of an offensive line, which has really been establishing themselves at that line of scrimmage. Two-play drive covers 56 yards. Noah Fance, the catch for the first 44 yards. Then James Butler's first touchdown. Iowa doubling up Nebraska on the road. Iowa plays Boston College in the 2017 Pinstripe Bowl on December 27th at Yankee Stadium in New York City with kickoff scheduled for 4.30 
4.15 p.m. Central Standard Time. The Hawkeyes finished the regular season 7-5 and five overall and 4-5 and five in the Big Ten Conference. The Eagles also finished 7-5 and five overall, and they were 4-4 four and four in Atlantic Coast Conference play. Iowa has wins over Illinois, Minnesota, Ohio State, Nebraska, Wyoming, Iowa State, and North Texas. Its losses were to Penn State, Michigan State, Northwestern Wisconsin, and Purdue. Boston College wins came against Northern Illinois, Central Michigan, Louisville, Virginia, Florida State, Connecticut, and Syracuse. The Eagles lost games to Wake Forest, Notre Dame, Clemson, Virginia Tech, and North Carolina State. This will be the first ever game played between these two teams. The Hawkeyes are 8-11 all-time versus current members of the ACC, but have won four straight, including over then ninth-ranked Georgia Tech in the 2010 FedEx Orange Bowl. Iowa is bowl eligible for the 16th time in the last 17 seasons and has posted a 6-8 and eight record in bowl games under head coach Kirk Ferentz. Only Ohio State and Wisconsin have a better record since 2001 among Big Ten teams playing in bowls. However, the 2010 Insight Bowl was the Hawkeyes' last win in a bowl game, and since then, Iowa has lost five straight bowls and four of those in rather embarrassing fashion. This is the 26th bowl appearance for Boston College, its 16th in the last 19 years. It is the second time the Eagles will play in the Pinstripe Bowl, having lost 31-30 in overtime to Penn State in 2014. BC is 14-11 all-time in bowl games, with its most recent victory coming last year in the Quick Lane Bowl 36-30 over Maryland, which was its first bowl victory since 2007. The Hawkeyes head coach, Kirk Ferentz, is the dean of college football coaches in his 19th season at Iowa, where his record is 142-97, and and in his 22nd year overall as a head coach with a record of 154-118. and Ferentz is just one win away from tying Hayden Fry as Iowa's all-time winningest head football coach. His 142 overall wins and 86 Big Ten victories rank sixth in league history. The Eagles head coach, Steve Adazio, is in his fifth year at BC, where his record is 31-32. and He's been a head coach for seven years. His overall record is 44-43. and Adazio is the first head coach in BC history to lead their team to four bowls in the first five seasons. The Pinstripe Bowl will be televised by ESPN with announcers Kevin Nagandi, Mac Brown, Booker McFarland, and Jen Lada. As usual, it will be broadcast on the Hawkeyes radio network with Gary Dolphin, Ed Potter, and Rob Brooks. It will also be available on Satellite Radio Channel 80 on both XM and Sirius. In game notes, these two teams are similar in many respects, and both proclaim that they like to play tough physical football. Both are also developmental programs whose head coaches wear that label proudly. The key stats across the board for the season are fairly even, but with a couple of exceptions. Iowa and BC like to define themselves, both offensively and defensively by running the football and stopping the other team from doing so. Establishing the run is especially important for the Hawkeyes. Iowa is 7-0 this season when rushing for 100 yards or more, but 0-5 when failing to hit that mark. In the last three seasons, the Hawkeyes are 27-1 when topping the century mark on the ground, but 0-11 when not doing so. Linebacker Josie Jewell and defensive back Joshua Jackson are unanimous consensus first-team All-Americans. They become the 24th and 25th to achieve that honor in the history of Iowa football, and it's just the fifth time that two Hawkeyes
Cowboys have earned that honor in the same season. The last time that happened was in 2003 with Robert Gallery and Nate Kading. Prior to that, 2002 with Eric Steinbach and Dallas Clark, 1985 with Chuck Long and Larry Station, and 1981 with Andre Tippett and Reggie Roby. Jewell won the Lot Impact Trophy given to the best defensive impact player in the nation. He was the Jack Lambert Award winner as the best linebacker in college football. Jackson won the Jack Tatum Award as the best defensive back in the country. The two were among 10 Hawkeyes to earn all Big Ten honors. Jewell is third in the nation and tops in the Big Ten with 11.4 tackles per game. He leads the conference and is 10th nationally with 125 total tackles. He also had 13.5 tackles for loss, four sacks, and two of Iowa's 19 interceptions. Jackson is tops in college football with 25 passes defended and shares the NCAA lead with seven picks along with Lucas Dennis of BC. He has 18 pass breakups, second in the FBS, and ranks fourth in the nation with 163 interception return yards. His seven picks lead the Big Ten. The Hawkeyes lead the conference and are second in the nation with 19 interceptions, including four pick sixes. The latter ties a single season team record. The Eagles are right on on their heels with 18 picks, which ties for fifth nationally. Iowa is 20th in the nation in scoring defense and just one of nine teams in the top 25 in scoring defense each of the last three seasons. The Hawkeyes surrender an average of 19.9 points per game. Iowa quarterback Nate Stanley needs just two TD passes to tie Chuck Long for Iowa's single season record. Stanley has been terrific in the fourth quarter this year, and Iowa has outscored its opponents in that period. 113 to 57. Running back Akram Wadley has rushed for more than 1,000 yards in back-to-back seasons, just the fourth Hawkeye to do that in history. He has 1,021 rushing yards going into the Pinstripe Bowl. He needs 193 more to tie for fourth all-time. Wadley also has 27 career rushing TDs, fourth all-time, plus 10 touchdowns via the pass for a total of 34 TDs. That ranks third in Iowa history. Iowa had terrific productivity out of its young Young tight ends this season. Sophomore Noah Fant leads the FBS with 17.4 yards per catch, but even more impressive is that he scored 10 touchdowns on his 28 receptions, the most on this year's team, and the most for a tight end in a single season in program history. Redshirt freshman TJ Hawkinson added 23 catches. Three of those resulted in TDs and 16 in a first down. The Pinstripe Bowl is a homecoming of sorts for Wadley and freshman wide receiver Amir Smith Marset. They both played their high school ball in Newark, New Jersey. Boston College comes into this game having won five of its last six games. In those contests, BC averaged 36 points per game and outscored opponents by an average of 19 points per contest. Included in that stretch, wins over Florida State, Louisville, and Syracuse. On offense, the Eagles are led by freshman running back A.J. Dillon, who is the second leading rusher among freshmen in the country, trailing only Wisconsin's Jonathan Taylor. Dylan finished the regular season rushing for 1,432 yards. That's 15th in the country. He was named ACC Rookie of the Year and first team All-ACC as well. Dylan averages 183.2 yards per game over the last half of the season, and in those contests, he accumulated 1,099 yards on the ground and has 11 touchdowns. BC has a plethora of receivers, including tight ends, who have receptions and have caught touchdown passes. The 
Eagles junior free safety Lucas Dennis is tied for the FBS lead in interceptions with Iowa's Josh Jackson, as I mentioned earlier. Each has seven. BC also has two very good defensive ends in Zach Allen and Harold Landry. They combine to put a lot of pressure on opposing QBs, and each has five sacks. Allen is second on the team with 93 tackles, which is the second most by a defensive end in the FBS. BC also has a solid group of linebackers, led by senior Ty Schwab, who is the team leader with 101 tackles, and he also has four sacks. And BC's defensive coordinator, Jim Reed, is Iowa's former linebackers coach. In depth chart notes, both teams are dealing with some injuries, and now the Hawkeyes are also missing players due to disciplinary issues. Seniors strong safety Miles Taylor will miss this game due to injury and surgery. But the good news for Iowa is that Amani Hooker is back in his place. He's at full strength after missing several games due to an injury. And Iowa's defensive secondary seems to have actually played better with Hooker starting than it has with Taylor in that position. But depth does become a real issue due to the fact that the Hawkeyes are already missing free safety Brandon Snyder, first by re-injury and now by indefinite suspension due to a recent DUI. Of equal, if not more importance for this game, given BC's style of defense, is the fact that Iowa is once again shuffling its offensive line. Starting left tackle Alert Jackson is suspended for this game due to a violation of team rules that has forced starting right tackle Tristan Wirfs to move over to the left side, and then Levi Paulson will start at right tackle for only the second time in his young career. Another injury note that hasn't been confirmed by Ference is at punter. Iowa started this season with sophomore Colton Rastetter handling punting duties. He has at best been very inconsistent. Ference took the red shirt off true freshman punter Ryan Gersandi near midseason. He was also inconsistent, but was punting for a slightly better average than Rastetter. Then, sources tell us that Gersandi was injured and now hasn't even practiced for the past month, even though Gersandi and Rastetter are listed on the depth chart as co-starters. So it will either be Rastetter or, and this is the more intriguing possibility, quarterback Nate Stanley. Stanley was an excellent punter in high school. He's already kicked twice this season. BC's redshirt freshman starting quarterback is out after being injured in the Eagles game against NC State on November 11th. He is replaced by graduate Darius Wade, who is backed up by a true freshman, E.J. Perry. BC's starting defensive end, Harold Landry, is also questionable for the bowl game. Eight Big Ten teams are playing in bowl games, beginning with Iowa's appearance in the Pinstripe Bowl against Boston College on Wednesday and ending with Michigan's game in the Outback Bowl versus South Carolina on Monday January 1st. There are, of course, this season, no Big Ten teams in the national champion playoffs. Mm, I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch has got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Mm-mm-mm. This is going to fall into the hands of Josie Jewell. That is a turnover, fumble, interception, whatever it's ruled. Josie Jewell has the ball for Iowa and once again, how many times has Anthony Nelson been a headache for Tanner Lee and a headache for Brendan Hymas trying to block him. Uh, Nelson with the pressure, Danny. Uh, Tanner Lee's had a rough day. And Josie Jewell again in the perfect spot. Nelson comes off the edge with the pressure, gets that arm up, and it goes right to Josie Jewell. We are pleased to have former Hawkeyes punter and place kicker Ron Caluzzi joining Hawkeyes Mike as a regular contributor. You will hear Ron's hang time features on both Reporter's Notebook and Quick Hits podcasts from time to time. Check out caluzzikicking.com. You can also follow Ron on Twitter at ronkaluzzi16.
Ron, it's our bowl preview show. Let's right now go back and look at the season as a whole, a regular season, in terms of the development of the place kicker and the punters. And this was, of course, a year where Iowa had to replace both of those positions. Let's focus on place kicker first, kickoffs and place kicking. Miguel Racinos, and you look at his stats and the actual production in all respects, has really been a very pleasant surprise. And what looked like a potential issue at the beginning of the season has turned out to be a real strength yeah I mean looking specifically at field goals I think Miguel Racinos had a a very solid year you know if I were to grade him I'd probably give him a B or a B plus on his performance going 41 for 41 on extra points and doing a pretty solid job on field goals and missing a couple you know intermediate type kicks like 39 yarder but you know he's done very solid when it comes to the, the kicking game more specifically on kickoffs I'd give him an A if not an A plus he's had tremendous height and and leg strength getting touchbacks and getting the ball placed where it needs to be exactly what you know you need to do as a kickoff specialist to allow your coverage to get downfield to make a play which is also uh, been done phenomenally this year the coverage team has been wonderful and I don't remember any big returns from any teams this year so I'd give him um, an A or an A plus on kickoffs and uh, when it comes to the punting game you know we've we've struggled trying to find a, a solid punter that's going to get the job done but you know, if I were to grade it, I'd give it a, a C or a C minus. It hasn't been um, our biggest strong suit in the, the kicking game and something that needs to get going a little bit here for the bowl game. Back to Racinos a second and the kickoffs point that you were making. He's kicked off 64 times this season. His average kickoff has been a little over 63 yards. Touchbacks, however, of those 64 kickoffs, there have been touchbacks 32 times, 50%. And the kickoff return average against Racinos kicks and the kickoff return coverage team has been 16.8 yards. Those are pretty great stats and have made a huge difference in starting field position for the opponents all season long yeah no those those are phenomenal stats and you know as i said earlier he's done a tremendous job getting great height on his ball and placing it where it needs to be if he you know can't get it uh five or five yards or more in the end zone to get a touchback and i was 73 or 74 percent on touchbacks my senior year at iowa but you know of the three years that i did get to do kickoffs in college my first year doing it you know i was close to 50 percent, just like miguel this year so you know you'll see him him gradually increase his percentage in the next two years to come if he's still doing kickoffs but he's he did a great job you know I, I said it earlier he, he did a great job this year on kickoff and the coverage was even better anytime that the ball did come out you know they were on it like white on rice back to the punting again now you had Colton Rastetter handling most of the punting this season he, he, he had 49 punts he averaged 38.4 yards they pulled the red shirt off of true freshman Ryan Gersandi who ended up with only 13 punts in a 42.5 yard average. Rumors have been swirling that Gersandi has some kind of injury. Uh, he wasn't seen at the practice, the open practice for the media earlier this week. The, the whole punting issue has been such a mixed bag this season. And you saw it, you kept thinking, okay, it's going to get a little bit better, a little bit better as they get more experience because they were both kicking pretty much for the first time. But it didn't get better. And in the Nebraska game, you know, right off the bat, Rastetter couldn't handle a, a snap and it turned almost immediately into a Nebraska touchdown and put Iowa 
in the hole early. Ultimately, it didn't matter because the Hawkeyes blew out the Cornhuskers in that game. But is it true that the punter sometimes can look really good in practice and then just not be that good in game? Yeah, I mean, that that happens all the time. You know, I would have a phenomenal week of practice, whether I was at Central Michigan or Iowa, and then I would have a really bad game. But, you know, there's a lot of things that go into play with actual game experience. You know, you can have a 40-mile-per-hour wind in your face, or it could be negative 20 degrees with the windshield. And I've played in elements like those. You know, frankly, Iowa didn't have those uh, severities in front of them when it comes to uh, Colton or Ryan performing. But, you know, they did have some games where it was pretty bad outside and the wind was swirling and they didn't know how to judge it. But now to answer your question, if you have a really good warm up in pregame and you're 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 balling out and you got a groove that gives you confidence going into the game. A lot of the times um, it could be the opposite. You know, I've seen a lot of specialists have a horrible warm up and then they ball out during the game. They're just a different type of person and they're locked in. And personally, I think it's all mental when you get into the game one of two things is going to happen you're going to be locked in you're going to be ready to go and you're going to execute what you've been preparing to do for the last year from fall camp and spring ball and winter conditioning and everything else like your body your mind is ready to go or two you're going to be shaking in your boots is what i like to call it you're going to be worrying about everything that you can't control a bad snap the wind in your face coaches yelling at you if you mess up you know your girlfriend being disappointed in your performance if you didn't do too well maybe your parents parents more more importantly your teammates right you don't want to let them down so you know this year I think the punters were just young you know immature and and playing experience and that will get better as um, this next year approaches but they they just need to be more locked in and worried about performing well for their team rather than their own peccadillos and it'll get better but just need to go back to the basics and get done get down with some drills and get everything going for this upcoming bowl game the other comment that we've heard off and on during the season especially as it went along and you saw some of the punting struggles people would point out that Nate Stanley was a very good punter in high school in addition to being the quarterback in high school and in fact he had two situational punts this year one a pooch punt uh, and the other um, he dropped back and hit a 47 yarder so he's got two punts for a 39 yard average but how realistic in in big time college football is it to say that it's a good idea to have your quarterback be both the starting quarterback and the starting punter. I mean, is that really realistic? Well, it's realistic if you were to not bring the punting unit out when it's time to punt. Like, let's say we're on our 20-yard line and it's fourth down with five yards to go and Coach Ferentz calls the number one offense out there and they go into a shotgun formation and, you know, Nate Stanley looks like he's going to throw a slant pattern, but instead he punts the ball downfield. And he did that a couple times this year and so did C.J bethard a couple times last year and it worked in their advantage the biggest thing that i can think of where you have a huge advantage to your side is no returner they're going to think that it's a normal offensive play where they're trying to get the first down and win the game and that's when i would punt the ball because there's no there's going to be nobody downfield and the ball can just roll 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 for 50 to 60 to 70 yards if you know it's a good bounce so it's it is realistic 
And if it were me um, and the punters aren't really giving me any confidence to get them on the field and do a traditional style punt or a rugby rugby style punt, I would send my offense out there, make it look like I'm going to run a play. But in reality, I'll just have Nate Stanley punt the ball. Let's say, though, that you're on your own 35-yard line and it's fourth and seven and it's an obvious punting situation. I mean, would you want to use your quarterback as the punter in an actual, you know, traditional punting situation? I wouldn't do a traditional punt. I again I would still throw my offense out there and I would have Nate Stanley rugby punted out of bounds that's what I would do because they're not going to put a returner back there they're going to use him as a dual threat to either run or run the ball or throw the ball or hand it off and they're not going to bring a returner back there they're going to play their normal defensive scheme or play safe meaning they're going to back off a little bit from the the line and you know approach the the play as he's going to throw it but I would still throw my offense out there and and uh, have Nate Stanley punt it, especially if they're not showing me confidence that they can pooch punt, you know, pretty well. So it all depends what you know Coach Ferentz is is seeing in bowl prep this this year. Okay, let's talk the pinstripe bowl for a minute. It's an unusual game in the sense that it's played in a baseball stadium, Yankee Stadium in New York City. Could have weather issues. The forecast is a possibility of you know cold, blustery weather and snow. Is there anything perception wise? that comes into your mind as either a place kicker or a punter when you're having to perform inside a venue that is not a traditional football field? Yes and no. I mean, when when you look at a kicker or a punter, and if they've been trained and they're playing at the University of Iowa, per se, they've been taught that every kick or every punt is a straight kick or a straight punt. And what that means is if I were to go out and practice today and I didn't want to hit traditional field goals in a stadium with an upright, like a yellow upright and a snap and a hold, I could take my kickers and my punters and go to, let's say, a baseball field and line them up 50 yards away from a flagpole or a light and I would tell them to aim and try to hit the pole or try to hit the light. What that means is their their angles, their approach, every their their line, their steps, everything to that pole or that flagpole has got to be lined up accordingly so they can make their kick a straight kick or their punt a straight punt. You know, with this baseball field playing in the Yankee Stadium for the bowl game, it might mess up a, a couple people, but in reality I don't think it's gonna mess up specialists. I don't think it's gonna mess with them because Nothing does change when you're kicking or punting. Every kick and every punt is a straight punt and a straight kick. The thing that you know is popping in my head that might be a little bit different is if the infield that is dirt um, is sticking out enough to where either Hash has some dirt and Miguel has to hit a field goal in the dirt rather than grass. That's gonna that's gonna bring up some problems. You know, one is he's gonna be sliding all over the place. He's not gonna have a proper plant foot and the ball might spray right because he's gonna be slipping. So that that's my biggest thing that, that I'm worried about, along with the weather. You know, it's uh, December, uh, it's the winter in New York and it's gonna be cold, it's gonna be windy. Uh, a lot of people don't realize how bad it can be. You know, when I played at the Bahama Bowl, the Popeyes Bahama Bowl, my junior year, I had 40 mile per hour winds in my face. And I had to punt seven times that game. And I averaged, I think, 18 yards a punt. And everybody, you know, when I transferred to Iowa, they published those stats and said, oh, this guy's trash. But what they didn't know was I was punting into a 40-mile-per-hour wind, and there was, like, a tsunami 
or a hurricane or something happening that was brewing up in the Bahamas. So, you know, we also got to keep that in mind that they're going to be playing in some tough elements and they need to stay warm on the sidelines and be ready to execute when they got to go in. We talked, I think, towards the end of the season about a couple of factors that I don't think the average fan and maybe not even the average coach who doesn't deal with kickers especially uh, thinks much about, which is that the wind, if it's strong enough, can actually affect your drop or the punt or the long snap. Yep. Yeah. If the wind is really strong and let's say it's coming from right to left and you have a right footed punter um, and you're normally trying to drop it on your right hip, if you put it where you normally put it where there's no wind, the ball is going to turn and you're going to hit it in the middle of your frame. So you're going to be chasing the ball with your foot instead of hitting it off like your hip location, you're going to be hitting off the middle of your frame. So you're, you're going to be chasing the ball. And what that means is you're going to be, instead of swinging straight downfield, you're going to be swinging across your body. So if you're right footed, the ball is going to go left. And more often than not, it's going to be a shank. You know, it's same thing applies for a left to right wind. You know, if you normally drop it on your hip um, and, and the wind takes it off, you know, your right hip, it's going to come off the side of your foot. It's going to be a 15 yard punt right out of bounds, probably 20, 20 rows up in the stands. So yeah, the wind plays a huge factor on the snap. It plays a huge factor on the drop. And if these guys aren't preparing and practicing hard enough and making sure that they have a low drop if they're punting into the wind or um, tilting it accordingly when they drop it from a left to right wind or right to left wind, then they're going to be in trouble. You know, they know just as much as I know um, when it comes to performing in those kind of elements. And I think they're going to be prepared. It's one thing, I suppose, if it snows before beforehand, let's say the day before or overnight, and they clean the field off, you would think that that probably wouldn't have much impact. What if it's actually snowing during the game? Does that impact the kickers? Uh, it does. It's pretty crazy. I actually just posted a blog on my website, and the title of it is called Weathering the Elements. The blog basically goes goes over what you should do if you're kicking in bad weather or punting in bad weather. Recently, there was a, a game where I think the, the Colts had had to hit an extra point in order to put it into overtime and you know there was like a foot and a half of snow on the ground everybody on the team like offense defense the trainers coaching staff they called timeout and they brought everybody on the field and they were shoveling the snow with their feet to make a little lane in a spot where there's grass for the kicker to hit the ball he made it and the, the game went into overtime but what i'm trying to say is if there is a lot of snow on the ground and and they have to hit a field goal. You're going to see the offensive line and the quarterback or whoever's on the field probably shoveling the snow away for Miguel to have a clear lane to kick the ball. So yeah, it's very important and it could really mess up a kick if there's snow on the ground. Just before we go on to the next point, if somebody wanted to read that blog post, where do they go to do that? Oh yeah, you just go to www.kaluzikicking.com and then you click on my blog section of my website. It's right in between team and register. And then it's actually the, the second blog down called Weathering the Elements. This week was the first early signing period day for players to sign ahead of the traditional February date, their national letter of intent. The Hawkeyes signed a number of players. Uh, looks like a pretty good recruiting class on paper, including some last minute commitments that they got. But there were no place kickers or punters recruited. Now, Kirk 
said the number somewhere is going to end up through the early signing period here between 16 and 18, apparently. Kirk indicated that by the time February is done, he would expect 22 to 23. So that means there's another five or six to go. There have been some punters they've looked at and some place kickers. Uh, been a couple of stories the past few weeks about some of those guys making their official visits or unofficial visits here to Iowa City. But uh, as you and I've talked before, there is a reluctance not only in the Iowa staff, but other programs to actually use scholarships on punters or place kickers. What do you expect to see unfold over the next couple of months here in terms of maybe trying to add at least one punter and one place kicker to the class for next season? Yeah, at the very least, I imagine that they'd bring in another punter, probably a preferred walk-on guy, to come in and compete this summer for the job. You know, this year just wasn't consistent enough, in my opinion, for a Big Ten university to compete with everybody else in their conference and so on and so forth. So I, I imagine they're going to bring on at least a, a punter to walk on and, and compete for the job. But, you know, they might also bring on a, a kicker who could be a combo player and do both. You never know. But at the very least, I think they're going to bring on a punter. Before we wrap it up here, and I think we did talk about this once in one of our earlier hang time segments, you've mentioned the fact that you used to work late. Josh Jackson used to work late. Jackson's had a phenomenal year year. Probably going to opt for the NFL and probably be a reasonably high draft pick. But tell us a story about how you guys uh, became friends and had ping pong competition in the football performance center. Yeah. Well, when I first got to Iowa, Josh Jackson was one of those guys that was always smiling, always happy, just, you know, excited to be a part of the program. You could tell he, he was there mentally, physically, and he was there emotionally. He was invested in it uh, emotionally and wanted to do well. You know, that kind of made me attracted to him and, and want to just approach him and see, you know, what's going on. And, and from there, we noticed that we, we would stay late. We would both be watching film late and going over things that we needed to get sparked up on for the upcoming game. Then that kind of just transitioned to hanging out, talking a little bit in the player's lounge. And then we're both competitive, so we play ping pong. He's got some wicked serves and some crazy backhands, but he's, he's a phenomenal guy and an even better ping pong player. If you were him or if you were advising him, what would you say to him about opting out for the NFL? You know, that's not really my call. I was never uh, talented enough to have that that kind of opportunity in front of me. But if it were, I would probably tell him, just follow your heart. You know, do do what you think is best, but definitely take in uh, Coach Ferrant's opinion, your parents' opinion, and make the best educated decision you can make as a young man. Put that big-ass size 13 on and kick it for the homies. It's a 48-14 lead now for Iowa on the TD run by Torin Young. And the route is on here in Lincoln. The extra point by Racinos extends the lead and it has been all Iowa since the late first half. 49-14 now the lead as they head for a win in this game for the fourth time in the last five years. How many things have you touched today? Hmm? Ooh, a puppy. <laughs> How many places have your hands been? Ooh, a keyboard! 24-hour hand sanitizer protection just makes sense. Prefins, a silica-based hand sanitizer protects your hands all day. Stays on. Up to 10 washings. Moisturizes. Alcohol-free. And safe for the kids. So go ahead. Touch anything and everything. Ew, a toilet! Prefins. Keep your hands germ-free all day. Do you want to learn more about kicking and punting? It's hard to find quality training for place kicking and punting, especially with a coach who will give you full attention and who cares about your growth as a person as well as a kicker. 
That's why Kaluzi Kicking is here. Kaluzi Kicking strives to bring out the very best in every student athlete by utilizing hands-on training, video analysis, and athlete marketing. Kaluzi Kicking is a family-oriented company and believes in working hard to help achieve your goals. The Kaluzi Kicking team will provide you the resources you need to perfect every aspect of the kicking game as you aspire to play at the next level. You can find out more information at kaluzikicking.com. Or you can email us, info at kaluzikicking.com. Kelly Mark with a sixth run and a run that will end up in the end zone for another touchdown for Iowa. Is there any more the more running backs for Iowa that need a touchdown on the afternoon? They have they, four. Right, they have four exactly. now. Wadley has three and now one apiece for Ivory Kelly Martin, Torrin Young, and James Butler, by the way, with his first touchdown of the season earlier in the game. Kirk Ferentz and his team about to go to 7-5 and five and start making bowl plans. Time to begin our Iowa-Boston College Pinstripe Bowl deep dive. First up, Steve Batterson takes a look at the matchup between Iowa's defense and the Boston College offense, plus talk some special teams. You can read Steve's articles in the Quad City Times and online at qctimes.com, and you can also follow Steve on Twitter at sbat79. Steve, we're on the verge of the pinstripe bowl between Iowa and Boston College, two teams that at least on paper match up pretty closely. Before we turn to that game, let's uh, get your final thoughts on Nebraska. It was Nebraska, but it was a terrific performance by the Hawkeyes, matching or maybe even superseding the one they turned in against Ohio State. But what did that game really tell you because of the situation at Nebraska itself? Yeah, it certainly was a terrific second half for Iowa. I mean, you know, it was a, it was a kind of game at the, at the break and, and you know that 28 point third quarter uh, every, everything seemed to work for Iowa uh, in, in that situation and um, you know I, a little bit of that is on Nebraska and their defensive deficiencies that uh, you know that, that Scott Frost problem now you know, the Huskers line play isn't where it has been in the past and um, you know Iowa certainly was able to finally take advantage of that and uh, you know between uh, you know Akram Wiley going off for 159 yards and, and and Noah Fant having having a career day as a receiver in his home state, uh, you know everything uh, everything came up uh, the way the Hawkeyes were hoping in in a, in a matchup that uh, you know Iowa needed to perform well in coming off of off of the, uh, the loss to Purdue and and the Hawkeyes certainly did uh, you know 505 yards of offense 313 on the ground uh, it was a good day for the Hawkeyes. We certainly saw in the last two games of the regular season how dumb head coaches can be sometimes when they're out thinking themselves on do they want the wind in the third quarter or the fourth quarter. Kirk got burned big time, probably cost Iowa the game at home against Purdue when he decided to opt for the wind in the fourth quarter. And then Purdue racked up all their points in the third quarter and put Iowa in the hole and they couldn't catch up. Same thing happened in reverse at Nebraska. Riley chose to prefer the wind in the fourth quarter, gave Iowa the wind in the third quarter, and the Hawkeyes offense ran away from Yeah, it really took Nebraska totally out of the game and, and uh, you know, turned it into a, a chance for, for folks to get out of the parking lot early over there uh, on, a, on a windy but uh, warm late November day and, and gave Iowa fans a reason to hang around till the end to uh, to uh, 
uh, watch that trophy, uh, uh, you know, head back to Iowa City for another year. And a terrific effort, too, by the Iowa defense in holding Nebraska to 96 yards on the ground, too. That's, that's, that gets overlooked a little bit with what the offense did. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it was a good team effort in, in pretty much every phase. Well, that's a perfect segue into our focus for this conversation, Iowa's defense against the Boston College offense. We all know what Iowa's defense has done, and the uh, unanimous consensus All-Americans, Josie Jewell at linebacker and uh, Joshua Jackson at defensive back. I think Iowa knew what they had in Jewell coming in this season. I don't think they knew what they had in Jackson, who has just been really um, nothing short of, of phenomenal. And now you have a Boston College offense that has been really productive in the, towards the, the second half of the season. They won five out of their last six ball games, and they did it in style. But when you look right now at Boston College's offense, you have a situation where they have a terrific true freshman running back, and they lost their starting quarterback. So wh- what do you think the matchup is like here between the Hawkeyes' defense and BC's offense? Well, certainly there's no secret as to what BC likes to do. They like to run the football. They like the power running game, much like Iowa. And, and they've got a back to make it work. A.J. Dillon is a, is a freshman, the only freshman in the country that was more productive than him this season than Jonathan Taylor at Wisconsin. Dillon, uh, you know, he, he's a he's a back that uh, a couple of uh, Iowa defenders uh, last week say can make you look pretty foolish if you make a mistake against him. And it's going to force Iowa to play a very assignment sound, uh, you know, technique strong kind of game. But, uh, you know, he's averaging five and a little over five yards to carry 5.3. He has 1,432 yards on the season. And he's found the end zone 13 times. And, you know, his breakthrough game was really kind of their team's breakthrough game. What he did against Louisville was, uh, uh, you know, something that helped turn around a season that was kind of teetering a little bit. And uh, they went into Louisville and came away with a, a 45-42 win. And, and uh, you know, he gained 200 and around 250 yards in that ball game. And it's just been kind of an offense that kind of found its flow in that game. And, and, and they really haven't been looking back since. Their only loss uh, during those last six games was, uh, uh, you know, a, a three-point game to, to North Carolina State. And, uh, you know, they've handled some pretty solid programs uh, during the during that stretch and it's a lot has had to do with the ability that they of, of Dylan in the backfield and certainly the work of their offensive line you gave Dylan's stats which are really eye-popping he was also named the ACC rookie of the year and all ACC first team running back I mean when you look at some of the other teams and the players in the Atlantic Coast Conference those are pretty impressive credentials you know, he's a kid that, uh, you know, they had some hopes for coming into the season. And, uh, you know, it took a while for things to kind of get going. But, uh, you know, once once he got on a roll, you know, there hasn't been any looking back. And, uh, you know, there, there, there's only been one freshman in ACC history that, that's collected more yards than he has on the on the ground. And, you know, he, he will be the focal point of, of Iowa's defense and, and, and what they need to do. But uh, when you, uh, you take a look at a guy who ran for 272 yards away, at Louisville, you know, a terrific performance on, on 39 carries. So they're not afraid to put the ball in his hands. And, and uh, when he gets it going, uh, you know, it, it's a hard downhill type run. And, you know, they have some pieces that kind of complement him too. Uh, John Hilleman is, is a back who's going to see some time as well. And uh, and it appears like Travis Levy is a guy that's going to carry as well uh, and be a factor in kind of what they want to do uh, from what they've said this week. So it's, uh, you 
you know, Dylan is the focal point, but they feel like against Iowa and against the physical nature of the Iowa defense, they're going to have to put the ball in multiple hands to make it work. Now their starting quarterback for the first 10 games was also a true freshman named Anthony Brown out with an injury now. They've got Arius Wade, who's now going to be the starting quarterback in this game. And a little interesting footnote here, BC is the only school in the country where they had a freshman lead the team in passing in Brown, rushing in Dylan, and pretty darn good receiver in Kobe White. So you mentioned their other running backs. They have quite a few receivers who've caught passes this year and who've caught touchdown passes. Yeah, it's a pretty diverse group, and and you know it, it just adds a little bit to to Iowa's defensive preparation. And uh, they have eight backs with or eight receivers with eleven or more catches this season. And and uh, you know it, it's the kind of mix that uh, you know that Iowa has tried to use to to uh, to move the ball. And uh, you know Darius Wade at quarterback has maybe a little more of a of a consistent arm uh, than what Anthony Brown provided during those first games of the season. Um, he's uh, you know a guy who's uh, thrown for 61% of his uh, passes have been completed, and and he certainly has a lot of weapons that they can use to to move the ball. And uh, you know, and, and they're not afraid to to uh, you know to to make it work. They they uh, they have a solid tight end in Chris Garrison. He's got 15 catches on the year. It, it's uh, it's a it's a sound offense, and and it's uh, you know there's a reason that they that they've averaged 19 more points per game than their opponents over these last six games to make it all work. Kobe White, that wide receiver, I guess Iowa would call him a wide receiver. BC calls those receivers the X, A, and Z. So you've got White there, but they also have a pretty decent tight end, a couple of them really, Tommy Sweeney and Chris Garrison, who've put up good numbers. Nothing like uh, the numbers that uh, Noah Fant, for example, has put up, but they're they're decent across the board there. Yeah, uh, you know, and it's one of those things that, you know, Sweeney has been their most productive in terms of getting into the end zone. He has three touchdown catches, but, uh, you know, they've spread that around pretty well. They have 15 touchdown passes on, on the season, and you know, it's one of those things where you know, I was going to need to to be aware of, of, of that position and, and certainly uh, between Sweeney and, and Garrison, they've got uh, you know, they've got 44 catches between them, so, uh, you know, through 12 games, so, you know, they will go in that direction, and, and uh, you know, you've got guys like uh, Hilleman is, is capable of, of catching the ball out of the running back spot, and and Jeff Smith has has uh, uh, given them some uh, some ability as well. So it, it, it's a deep group, and and uh, one that Iowa has to respect. Now, Eleven different receivers have caught those fifteen touchdown passes, so that says something. They've got a, a veteran and solid offensive line. They are tenth nationally and second in the ACC. They've given up just twelve sacks all season. It's a veteran group, and it's played that way. And, and I think that's uh, um, you know that probably was their comfort zone going into the season with a rookie quarterback and and uh, uh, you know they, they've been able to uh, you know for the most part uh, you know stay healthy up front and and uh, I mean you take a look at it they they haven't had a, an offensive line change in, in the last uh, in the last 10 games so not a lot of moving parts there and uh, you know I'm sure that's uh, that's been a factor in, in the consistency that they've had offensively over the course of the season so back to Iowa's defense if BC likes to establish the run and stop the run they've not been quite as good at the latter as they have the former. Iowa obviously has been pretty effective at stopping the run and pretty solid in the defensive secondary. So how do you expect that matchup to play out? I mean, will Iowa try to make BC one-dimensional? And if they do that, will they succeed at that? I think that's uh, one of the goals that Iowa has every week is, is to try to turn that opponent into a, you know, a one-dimensional type team. 
And, uh, you know, this is a game where Iowa's linebackers are going to have to uh, to thrive. And, you know, they're certainly capable of that. Uh, with the three seniors, they're experienced enough. They know what they're getting into. And, uh, you know, I, I, guys like, you know, Josie Jewell and Bo Bauer and, and Ben Neiman, uh, you know, they need to have some of the one of their better performances collectively. I think if they're able to do that, I think they should be able to slow Boston College's ground game down. And, and that's where it's going to start. But, you know, T, BC has not uh, been a terrific passing team this year. Uh, and I, I think, uh, you know, the overall numbers, I think, are around 53.5% on completion. So, uh, you know, they're, they've got some talent there, but they haven't been overly consistent. If Iowa can take that away and turn them into, you know, get them to play a, you know, one-phase kind of football game, I think it certainly plays into Iowa's advantage. Before we flip over to special teams, it's more than a coincidence. It's really pretty fascinating, the fact that you would have the two players who are tied with the most interceptions in the country playing in this game on opposite teams. Josh Jackson, of course, has seven of those. And then BC has the individual defensive secondary player who's tied with him uh, named Lucas Dennis. But our focus here is on Iowa's defense. So let me ask you this. Do you think this is the last game we're going to see Josh Jackson suit up as a Hawkeye? I don't think it it, it would not surprise me uh, if that proved to be the case. I think that, uh, um, you know, he certainly has had a terrific season, uh, a one-year starter. Um, I I think signs kind of point towards that. You know, I I guess nothing totally surprises me anymore. Uh, But, uh, uh, you know, I think this is a case where probably, uh, um, you know, in in reflecting on on Desmond King's junior and senior season, which, you know, which he was exposed to, um, I think that, uh, you know, this probably will be a a chance for for him to, uh, you know, to go out on a high, and and I'm not sure that his value, that there's uh, much of an upside there for him to return and grow, but uh, you know, as Phil Parker alluded to uh, uh, during his news conference uh, pre-bowl, you know, uh, college football certainly is more of a family atmosphere, and the NFL certainly is a business, and you know, that's Iowa's pitch to him, is that you only get one chance to play college football, and and, uh, you know, the NFL will still be there uh, next year. They're not going anywhere, and uh, you know, the money, uh, at least in theory, uh, you know, you, you have a chance to earn that with your work on, a, on an annual basis in that league. You know, Josh Jackson has, has had a, a you know breakthrough season. Um, he's been, uh, you know, what he did on the biggest of stages against Ohio State and, and Wisconsin in consecutive weeks uh, caught plenty of people's attention. And uh, his marketability may not be higher than it, than it is at the present time. Some next news when it comes to safety for the Hawkeyes. Miles Taylor had surgery. He'll make the bowl trip, but he won't be able to play. But the good news for the secondary, and I think, in my opinion, at least, it's when the defensive secondary played its best. Iowa gets Amani Hooker back after missing a few games with his injury, and he's been more than solid. Yeah, uh, you know, Amani is, is a kid who obviously had some knee issues that uh, prevented him from contributing uh, down the stretch of the, of the season. And, and I think that, uh, you know, Iowa is still thin at the safety spots, but, uh, um, but I think, you know, they're in a situation where Amani gives them a, a, a really solid replacement. Uh, you know, what he doesn't have is, is the experience that Miles Taylor had from being a, a 30-plus game starter at Iowa, but he still can gain knowledge from from Taylor being there and, and you know, verbalizing what he's seeing uh, uh, during the course of the game. So there'll be a little bit of that going on, but I, I think Iowa's secondary is, is uh, you know, as long as they can remain injury-free during the game, 
game, I think they've got a, a pretty good shot to uh, to do uh, you know a decent job against a passing attack that uh, has been a little spotty at times. Okay, special teams. The one difference that stood out to me in terms of the stats, comparing the stats between the two teams, was in field goals. Weather could be dicey out there in New York City and Yankee Stadium on the 27th. You never know about the wind or snow or things like that. But Miguel Racinos has been a very pleasant surprise as a place kicker for the Hawkeyes this season, his first year as the starter. And he's hit 9 of 11 of his field goals, 82%. BC, on the other hand, has only had success 10 out of 17 times kicking field goals, 59%. Something like that could be the difference in this game. Well, and certainly I think if you look at what Colton Lichtenberg has done for BC, uh, you know, his success has come in, has come in short range. He's 2 of 7 from beyond, uh, or actually 2 of 8 from beyond 40 yards and uh, 10 of 17 on the season. So, you know, a, a, the long field goal situation, uh, you know, and that certainly favors Iowa if, if they need a, a deeper kick. Racinos has shown that he's, he's got a terrific leg and given the right situation, uh, that can be a difference maker in a game like this. And, you know, I think that uh, it certainly is one area that uh, Iowa does have a little bit of an edge. Kickoffs, again, Racinos solid there. He's put 50% of his kickoffs into the end zone as touchbacks. Now, that's been an important difference in field position time and again for the Hawkeyes this year, Racino's ability to kick deep. And special teams on the field defending against kickoff returns for Iowa have been solid all year long. Yeah, and, you know, and, and they're going to see um, a, a, a kick returner, and he's also their punt returner, Michael Walker, who's been fairly solid for BC. He's uh, uh, He handles both uh, areas. Uh, he's had 31 kick returns, averages uh, 24 and change on that, and, and uh, is at 13.7 yards on, on punt returns. So, you know, he's an athlete who has uh, has some ability, and I was going to have to be in a position to, to deal with him. And, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we've seen some growth from, from Iowa in the, that segment of the game over the course of the season, and, and I think it's certainly, uh, um, you know, it's another test, another uh, quality opponent, and, uh, you know, for a team that uh, has faced the sixth strongest schedule in the country this season, uh, nine bowl game, nine bowl opponents already. Uh, so it, it's, uh, you know, it, it'll be an interesting test. In terms of Iowa's returners, there was some undesirable adventure with punt returning by Matt Vandenberg uh, the last three games of the season, somewhat bizarrely, really, given his experience. But Iowa's shown some flashes on kickoff returns, and you've seen those flashes, although we've had a couple of freshmen step out of bounds on the one or the two-yard line and put the Hawkeyes deep in the hole. You've seen the ability that both Ivory Kelly Martin and Smith Marset have potentially on kickoff returns. Yeah, and that's the exciting thing is that, is that both of those guys are young guys that that you know will be around for a couple more years, and they certainly uh, you know their 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 potential is you know uh, extreme at this point. And, and what we're seeing is you know a situation on, on punt returns where it has been a bit of adventure. And, and frankly, you know I think probably heading into this game, the main the main objective remains what it's been the past few games, and to simply catch the football and go from there. Let's talk a minute about punting. Again, BC, solid punter. The starting punter is averaging over 40 yards a punt, and then that compares to Iowa's 
situation where Kirk pulled the redshirt off of true freshman Ryan Gersandi midway through the season, and we've hardly seen him since. Reportedly, some kind of an injury and uh, rumors that he hasn't even practiced for over a month. And even though Gersandi and Colton Rastetter, the other punter, are listed as co-number ones on the depth chart, that sounds to me like you're not going to see Gersandi in this game. Rastetter has been, I think, what you could generously describe as woefully inconsistent. And that brings us to the question of whether you might see in this game, and there's been a couple of hints, you might see Iowa starting quarterback Nate Stanley do the punting for the Hawkeyes in this game. Well, he's certainly capable. We, we, we've seen a couple of uh, examples of that, and, and uh, it was something he did do in high school. So, I mean, you, you've uh, he's been used twice this season. You know, he's averaging 39 yards a, a punt. Um, uh, you know, I, I would suspect that we will see uh, uh, Colton Rastatter out there some. Uh, and you're right, he has been fairly inconsistent, and, and I have not found the answer there yet. And, and that, you know, will be amongst the issues heading into the offseason. Uh, it depends a little on, uh, we, we've seen a little success on, on some rugby-style stuff. and But beyond that, it's, it's been a bit of adventure uh, at times, and, and certainly the weather has been a factor. So, yeah, the, the consistency of Mike Knoll, who's averaging, you know, a little over 40 yards per punt for, for Boston College, and he, he's punted 73 times, so he's had plenty of work as well. You know, I think that uh, I, I think that there's some, uh, you know, uh, the, the punting game could be an adventure at, at Yankee Stadium for both teams, and I think that uh, that may come down to becoming a factor in, in who wins this thing. We know one thing for sure. Iowa can't afford one or more of Rastetter's 25-yard punts in this game, where you're going to give BC great field position with that terrific freshman running back, Dylan. I mean, that would be, that's a that's a recipe for not winning this bowl game. So Yeah, it's a worst-case scenario, and, and certainly the, the possibility is there from what we've seen, and, and uh, you know, they can't afford the, the, the 27-31 kind of yard punts that, that have been a problem lately, and, and certainly the weather this time of the year becomes a factor, and the way it looks right now, uh, the wind won't be as much of a factor as certainly it was the last couple weeks of the regular season, but uh, certainly I think that uh, uh, both teams would uh, would prefer to uh, to pick up the first down rather than have to rely on their on their punting games. Okay, time now for your prediction. On paper, looks like a pretty good matchup. What do you think is actually going to play out? Yeah, I, I do. I think this is a really good matchup on paper, and, and uh, I, I think that Iowa certainly has a chance to to go in and end and that long bowl drought. Uh, they haven't won a bowl game since, since 2010 in the inside bowl against Missouri. You know, I, I, I think that uh, there is a motivation factor there with the seniors in this year's class that, that they want that to be part of their legacy, ending that streak. And um, I think Iowa will give a fairly spirited effort. Um, I, I certainly think that uh, this is a team that uh, will need to, to kind of get things going early. They'll need to find a, a break or two along the way, and I think if they can accomplish that, I think they can come out with a, you know, with a 24-21 kind of win. And and, and I do think Miguel Racinos's leg is is going to play a key part in this game. After this break, Scott Doctorman continues our Pinstripe Bowl preview. And a deflection and interception. Tanner Lee's pass is picked off. 
and a chance to run it back for Christian Welch. He's upended by Lee, the quarterback, at the 15. Man, they come in bunches for this Iowa defense. These turnovers, man, they start feeling it when Nebraska having to throw it so much. And Welch runs it back over 30 yards. Most interceptions in FBS as it stands right now, the 19th of the season, the third today. Tanner Lee now at 16 interceptions this year. Are you or your local Iowa company looking for a new roof or sheet metal work? TNK Roofing and Sheet Metal specializes in low-slope commercial and industrial roofing and sheet metal. Building strong and safe in the Midwest for over 50 years, TNK Roofing and Sheet Metal, located in Ely, Iowa, just south of Cedar Rapids, provides strong, expert customer service and the best quality fit for you, their customer. For a free estimate, give TNK a call at 319-848-4191 or toll-free at 1-800-383-7663. You can can also visit their brand new website at tkroofing.com. TNK Roofing and Sheet Metal, your home for all your low slope roofing systems. Give them a call today. Again, 319-848-4191 or toll free at 1-800-383-7663. Time now for our special bowl preview segment with Scott Docterman. You can read Scott's articles online at landof10.com, and you can follow Scott on Twitter at Scott Docterman. Scott looks at the matchup between Iowa's offense and the Boston College defense, and we preview the Big Ten Bowl games. Scott, it's just about time for the Pinstripe Bowl. Let's take a quick look at Iowa's offense against the Boston College defense. Overall, both offensively and defensively, both of these teams appear, at least on paper, to be pretty closely matched. BC has, has had a solid defense all year. They've played particularly well in their last few ball games. but we're looking at an Iowa offense that you saw Nate Stanley, and I know you've been pleased with his development over the year, play well by and large. And of course, Akram Wadley back-to-back thousand yard plus rusher yeah I think there's uh, there's two sides to really look at what Boston College has done on defense one generally they're pretty good they're very good against the pass they're one of the better teams in the country against the pass but then the flip side of that is they are dreadful against the run they allow almost 200 yards per game you know against the run so you know that's something that in most normal years Iowa would take advantage of you know quite a bit now you know this year Iowa's had its struggles you know rush for right around 142 yards per game that's low on Iowa's end of things uh, whereas you know BC you know is probably a little bit low for where they normally are but that said you know there's some there's really one element I think where Iowa could lose this game and that's if the tackles do not play well you know depending on whether or not Harold Landry ends up playing for for Boston College but let's assume that he is if you combine him and Zach Allen you've got two of the better defensive end combinations in the country you know Landry Landry was the ACC Defensive Player of the Year in 2016, had, you know, close to 20 tackles for loss, 16 sacks, something like that. And Zach Allen had a really good year this year for BC. And then Iowa's down to their fourth and fifth tackles. You know, now that Alaric Jackson is out for the bowl game for violating team rules, and then you throw on, you know, Boone Myers and Ike Butker being out, you're down to a true freshman playing left tackle and a guy who's making a second career start at right tackle. That's pretty tough for this team. So they're going to have to make sure somehow to neutralize 
guys, that defensive end combination. Because if they if they rush Nathan Stanley significantly, I'm not saying it could be another Wisconsin game, but if Iowa could run the ball, you know, say four yards on first down, but on second down, if you get a sack, you're done in, in this offense. And uh, then they could just tee off on you. So I think this is uh, that's the matchup to watch, mostly offensive and defensive. Now, if they can neutralize that pass rush there, uh, this team's got a chance to really be in, you know, in good shape. And, and I think this is where they're both really pretty close to even is both have really good pass rushes and both are ball hawking secondaries. Iowa, of course, has 19 interceptions and, and four that they brought back for touchdowns and Boston College has 18. So there's just a, one behind. So if uh, those if there's some pressure there, if Nathan Stanley feels the pressure and, and throws the ball to, uh, you know, you know, doesn't isn't very accurate or if the receivers aren't open, it, it could be a tough day for Iowa's offense. Of course, the wild card will be the weather or at least one of the wild cards. You don't know for sure what the weather will be out there. It could be okay or it could be windy and cold and snowy as we've seen in the past in those pinstripe bowl games. But let's go back to the issue of the tackles. That's probably about the last news that Iowa wanted to get the week or two weeks before the bowl game to have to juggle your your tackles and your offensive line. And we saw the issues they had earlier in the season when they first started juggling the offensive line due to those injuries. You have seen Tristan Wirfs play reasonably well at right tackle, but left tackle's another thing. And you saw Iowa struggle with some of these, I won't call them gimmicky aspects of the defenses that, you know, Wisconsin employed and Purdue to some degree, but they really seem to get their act together and make some adjustments in their blocking schemes for Nebraska. Now, it's tough to tell how how much impact that actually had because Nebraska's defense was pretty bad. But what do you think they'll try to do, Brian Ferentz, in terms of, of blocking in this game against that kind of a rush that BC employs? You know, I think they're going to live and die with running the football. You know, as you mentioned, weather could be an, a factor. You don't want to get your young quarterback killed back there. You don't want to make him make bad mistakes, you know, and throw the ball against a ball hockey secondary. So I think what you're going to see is them try to neutralize it by running the football, whether that's through, you know, gap or zone scheme. Now, they're going to have to pass at some point. You know, they're not going to go like Army or whatever. So I think they're they're going to have to pass. Now, one thing that Iowa has not done and it should do, especially in this situation, is generally they are mano-a-mano when it comes to, to blocking patterns. And it's cost them in the past. We saw that with uh, Northwestern in 2016, that when a guy is physically getting beaten, that they don't help him out very often. And they may need to do that. They may need to keep in tight ends or a tight end chip off the line of scrimmage on a defensive end to, to slow down their rush or something to that effect because otherwise, you know, either one of those two, you know, Zach Allen or uh, or um, especially Harold Landry, if he plays, you know, they can really dominate a game and they can dominate this team. So I think, uh, you know, what Iowa should do is make sure that they have help, you know, a back in the backfield, a tight end chipping, you know, possibly even a flex hitting off the edge. But I wonder if Iowa's going to do that because that's just not what they do very often. You mentioned the tight ends. To me, that would seem to be one of Iowa's advantages. They've been extraordinarily productive this season, particularly Noah Fant, but Hawkinson has had a pretty nice season too. I think they are the key every week, and it's, it's you could see the production differences when they employ them versus when they don't or when other teams really try to take them away because they are the true weapons of the passing game. You look at, at Noah Fant, what, 10 touchdowns, one of the highest, most in the country for a tight end. You know, just an extraordinary athlete because you can line him up outside. You know, I'm not saying he's Gronkowski or anything, but he's like a Jimmy Graham. You know, he's a 6'4", 6'5", target with great hands 
hands, great speed. You know, he's kind of built like Tony Moyaki and has speed like George Kittle. That's that's pretty impressive. And then TJ Hawkinson's your classic Iowa tight end who makes a lot of catches, who gets open, and they're both really young. So I, I think that those two will be, you know, impactful. Now they also have some blocking tight ends, Nate Weeding and uh, and Peter Picar in his last game. I mean, they, they are, you know, almost like offensive linemen in the way they play. And then I wouldn't rule out Sean Byer, you know, somebody that uh, uh, Kirk Ferentz mentioned the other day is making a lot of strides this time of year. And if, uh, you know, if he can, <laughs> if you can go with three tight ends and, and they're Hawkinson, Byer, and Fant, all of which were more like receiving tight ends growing up uh, in high school, I mean, I think you've got a real distinct advantage and you need to use that. Of course, Iowa has a relatively healthy James Butler back and you saw him have some impact in the Nebraska game. Boston College has a very active and solid group of linebackers. While their head coach is an offensive-minded head coach, their defense has really, really played well this year. How much of an impact, if any, psychologically, Scott, do you think it is for Akram Wadley and uh, Amir Smith-Marset to be basically back home playing in front of a home crowd? I think for uh, Akram, it'll be fun. It'll be a great conclusion to a incredible career. I mean, he's got 34 touchdowns. Nobody really, that kind of glossed over everybody that, wow, he's only too shy of the, of the uh, Iowa record. And he was at, back in, in Rutgers a few years ago. So that, you know, he kind of had, already had that homecoming, but this one's kind of the, the finale. So I think it'll be great for him. Now, on the flip side, I'm not so sure what to think of the Smith Marset because, yeah, he's close to home, but, you know, he's still a true freshman. You know, will he put too much pressure on himself? Will he uh, just, you know, will he perform? You know, he's been he's been great at times and he's been inconsistent at times. And so he needs to really be more consistent. And will he try to do too much? Will he decide, you know, hey, you know, I'll return the kickoff when, even though it's five yards, by, you know, behind the goal line and then get, you know, make it all the way to the 14. You know, will he do something like that? Or will he try to make an extra move or an extra play and drop the ball? You know, so with that, I'm not sure. But I think for Akram, it's definitely a plus. You know, he wanted to go somewhere warm, he said. That's not happening, but he's going to be in front of his hometown fans. And I think that'll that'll energize him. Let's flip over now. Just talk the Big Ten Bowl games in general, besides the Pinstripe Bowl, obviously, which is important to us. What else out there in terms of those eight bowl games the Big Ten teams are involved in intrigues you? Oh, there I think there's plenty of matchups. I mean, I think this is really intriguing in so many different ways. I mean, number one, you look at the Holiday Bowl and, and a contrasted styles. I don't know that there are many better than that, you know, in Washington State and Michigan State. Michigan State is a lot like Iowa, you know, hard-nosed, slug-it-out type of football. Washington State is, you know, with Mike Leach willing to throw it 80 times a game. So I think it's your classic matchup, you know, can, if, if Michigan State's defense can prevent, you know, Washington State from being on the field very long, Michigan State could blow them out. You know, if they can't keep up, it could go the other way. So styles make fights and certainly makes football games here. I think the, the most high-profile matchup, you know, since the Big Ten didn't make the playoff, has got to be in the Cotton Bowl, USC and Ohio State. I mean, anytime those two teams get together, you know, that's worth watching. And I think, you know, you're looking at the both of them, you know, were champions of their league and didn't make the playoffs. So it's like a, a surrogate Rose Bowl meeting. And I want to see, you know, how does Ohio State, you know, bring it? And then USC on the flip side, Sam Darnold, you know, could be the number one pick overall in the draft. So two blue blood programs going at it. And I think that's going to be intriguing. You know, I want to see, you know, Wisconsin and, and Miami in the Orange Bowl. I mean, this is a, this is almost a bona fide home game. It really is for Miami. But Miami struggled as of late down the stretch. You know, they have great athletes and they were a great story for most of the season. But then they got blown out by by Clemson and lost to Pitt, whereas Wisconsin was undefeated until going in that game. You know, can Wisconsin 
take that one more step, you know, and win 13 games. That's really impressive for that program. And then finally, you know, the uh, out of the other game part of it that really intrigues me is Washington and Penn State. I looked at Penn State and I thought, you know, they didn't get enough discussion at the end. They lost two whole games by a combined four points, one of which was at Ohio State where they uh, Ohio State had a great comeback. That was a one-point loss. Then they lost on the last play of the game at Michigan State by a field goal on a day where they had, you know, what, four hours of delays. And I thought Penn State was terrific this year, probably the best team I saw completely. So, um, you know, and they're going up against Washington, you know, which is now kind of back as a national tier program, and it's in the Fiesta Bowl. And and so, uh, you know, I want to see Saquon Barkley one last time. You know, I voted him second for the Heisman, but it took me a long time not to vote for first. I, I think that, uh, to me, those are the most intriguing matchups. I'd like to see what Purdue could do in a uh, out in the Foster Farms Bowl. You know, this is their first time back in a bowl game in five years. They're pretty energized, but they're going up against a team that's probably a little more talented than they are in, in Arizona. Uh, Northwestern took Iowa's wonderful spot in, in the Music City Bowl, and they're playing a 7-5 Kentucky. And, and this is where I, I've had a, bit, a little bit of an issue with the Big Ten and the bowl games is the on paper, really, you know, why wouldn't Northwestern want to go to the Foster Farms Bowl? Its crowd is more like that of, um, you know, Berkeley and, and the Bay Area. It seems to be kind of the, the wine and cheese crowd that they can really fit in with. The Big Ten talked about how they could make things more flexible in the bowl scheduling. I talked to them extensively about it in 2014 when it all went through. So to me, what would have made more sense is, hey, let's set up a, a kind of a, a really solid matchup here between, you know, say Northwestern and Washington State in the Foster Farms Bowl in San Francisco. Nine, two nine and three teams, you know, Washington State's going to the Holiday Bowl for the second straight year. You know, if they were been in San Francisco alongside Northwestern, I think you would have had a great matchup, a high profile matchup. And then you would have had Iowa go to, to the Music City Bowl where it's wanted to go. Instead, like I, I reported, a, you know, about a week ago, there's about a thousand tickets sold from Iowa to the Pinstripe Bowl. Iowa would have sold out of its allotment and probably taken 25,000 down to, to Nashville. So I think the Big Ten needs to learn from this experience. And even though they don't they don't dictate the terms to bowls, I think that they were all kind of jumbled up and screwed up. I would have preferred to see Michigan State in the Outback Bowl. You know, Michigan State beat Michigan. They had a better record. They should be there. Michigan could have played Arizona in the Holiday Bowl. And you could have had Rich Rod versus uh, Harbaugh. And Harbaugh would have been in his, uh, you know, the spot where he first started coaching and plus where he played quarterback for a little while. Uh, you could have Northwestern and say Washington State out in out in uh, the Foster Farms Bowl. That would have been perfect for those crowds. Northwestern hasn't played in a bowl game since 1996. Finally, you could have had Iowa play in, uh, in the Music City Bowl and really bring one heck of a good crowd and it would have energized the fan base. But instead, that's not what happened. So Iowa is going to play this game out in New York City. Two teams that have similar styles and backgrounds and certainly personalities. So I, I think it's going to be an intriguing matchup. I do think it, it's it's going to come down to that line of scrimmage. It's going to come down to whether Iowa can block the ends. If they can, I think it, uh, Iowa might snap this bowl losing streak. Two things before we get your score. You addressed it, the crowd. It's It sounds like BC has sold a slew of tickets. Iowa sold very few. Remains to be seen how many Iowa grads from the East Coast might be buying their tickets from the bowl or elsewhere and will actually appear for the game. But it's essentially going to be a home crowd for Boston College. And so that's one aspect. And then the other is, you know, we saw the last four games of the season, bizarre swings in terms of Iowa's offense. I mean, an unbelievable and unforgettable performance by Iowa against Ohio State at Kinnick, and then a totally forgettable performance by the Hawkeyes offense at Wisconsin, and a stinker for 
the offense at home on senior day against Purdue, and then a tremendous performance at Nebraska to close out the regular season. Does the Nebraska game tell us much of anything, given where they were at that point in time? Not. It does a little bit. I think it shows you the motivation that for Iowa is there. And when they want to execute or they can execute, they do. They're good. Uh, same thing against Ohio State. But I think what it shows is that sometimes, uh, you know, when teams frustrate Iowa and uh, you know they can't run the ball, then that's when things get really out of hand for the Hawkeyes. I mean, I use this statistic all the time, but, you know, this year alone, when they rush for 100 yards, they're 7-0. and When they don't, they're 0-5. You know, over the last three years, there's 27-1 and when they run for 100 yards, and then they're, what, 0-11 when they don't. So uh, running the football matters, and then those two games, they just didn't do it. So that's what's going to have to be the case here. They've got an opponent in which they can do that against, you know, that's given up almost 200 yards rushing per game. They just have to make sure to do it. And uh, as far as the, the home crowd goes, um, it might be a little bit of a struggle. Boston College isn't known to be a, a real major traveling fan base, although, you know, hopping on the train from Boston to New York isn't that difficult. I think, uh, you know, it's probably going to be a similar type situation to when Iowa went to, you know, to Rutgers or Maryland in the past. I imagine you're probably going to get, you know, as many as 5,000 Iowa fans total. They told the Pinstripe Bowl initially it was going to be between 7,500 and 10,000, you know, based on the, the East Coast factor. I don't know that they figured that there would be so few of people buying t- tickets here that I, I think they figured there would be more who go, oh, all right, let's just go. Well, again, I think Iowa fans, a lot of them might be intimidated by flying to New York City and then, you know, how are we going to get around? That's why they wanted Nashville. They wanted to drive there. Okay, it's time. So what you're thinking here, score, prediction, can Iowa break that bowl losing streak? All right. I think Iowa finally gets this bowl monkey off its back. Five straight bowl losses. This is a team where I think it's a good opponent for Iowa simply because if, if Iowa plays hard and, and doesn't commit any major turnovers, I think Iowa can win and maybe even win decisively. However, if Iowa doesn't play well, then I think it could be a, a grind and they could lose. It's that simple. I mean, you know, this is a team that's won five out of its last six and the only loss was to NC State, you know, which is a pretty good team by three points. They've blown out bowl teams like Virginia and Florida State and uh, beat Louisville with a, an incredible quarterback. However, that running game to me, and this could be a cold game if, if Boston College can't stop the run, can't, and if Iowa can't run, then I think uh, this is the Hawkeyes game. And so I'm going to go, whether it's with faith or, or stupidity, <laughs> I'm going to pick uh, the Hawkeyes to win this game 20-10 to 10, and uh, start a wave of positive momentum in the offseason, which is something we haven't experienced around here for a while. Post game show is brought to you by Christ, I can't find it. The hell with it. Today the worm turned in this game very, very quickly in the third quarter. It was a lead of a touchdown night by Nebraska late in the second quarter. Iowa tied it by halftime and then Iowa and Kirk Ferentz sees his team score all of the points in the second half and they win the Heroes Trophy taking the game 56-14. Yeah, this is an impressive performance from Iowa and they kept an end to a season. They'll get to a better bowl because of this one and Mike Riley probably looking at his last walk off this field here in Lincoln. (laughs) 
Just a reminder, you can participate in our shows by offering your own comments and opinions on the Hawkeyes. The toll-free hotline is available 24 hours a day. Call 866-74-HAWKS and make your voice heard. Visit HawkeyesMike.com, go to the news and events section, and check the links for up-to-date information on Iowa games, TV channels, team schedules, and more. You can subscribe to all Hawkeyes Mike podcasts through iTunes. And you can follow Hawkeyes Mike on Twitter, Tumblr, Medium, and Facebook. Our thanks again to FS1 for the game highlights this week. Those were fun to listen to. Thanks as always to Scott Docterman and to Steve Batterson. And special thanks to our specialist expert, Ron Caluzzi. We hope you've enjoyed this program. All Hawkeyes Mike podcasts are available and can be subscribed to on iTunes, Overcast, and other podcasting apps. HawkeyesMike.com, podcasting original programming on Iowa athletics for 11 seasons. It's all Hawkeyes all the time on HawkeyesMike.com. One passion, many voices. Nice work, everyone. Sharp broadcast. Really good. Everyone on the floor as well. Really a lot of hustle. I liked it. This has been a presentation of Hawkeye's Mike, LLC.